Alcohol abuse is a major problem in this country and binge drinking even more so. For adults, binge drinking means about four drinks in a two-hour span for women and about five drinks in a two-hour span for men. The National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism notes that rates of binge drinking are generally high among college-age youth, 18 to 22. Among non-college students, binge drinking rates are about 27.7% and 33% among full-time college students. When you mix binge drinking with trauma and anxiety, it can turn into full-blown alcohol addiction. And joining me on this episode of The Anthony Bradley Show is Ryan Primer, who's going to tell his story of 28 years of life and his wrestlings with anxiety and trauma and alcohol addiction and the life of sobriety. And we thank you for joining us for this discussion on The Anthony Bradley Show. Hello there, and welcome back to the Anthony Bradley Show. I cannot tell you how excited I am. I say this every episode, I'm not excited, but I actually really am excited to have a conversation with Ryan Primer, 28 years old from Crystal River, Florida. And I cannot remember how I found uh, Ryan on Instagram, but I am so glad I did because this brother's story is extraordinary. Um, he is someone who is currently in the midst of, of recovery. And I want to know more about his story. I wanted to be helpful for, for my listeners and for those who have family members or friends uh, who are currently battling recovery and being sober and sobriety in general. I want this episode to be, to be useful. And so I asked Ryan graciously if he would be willing to tell us more about his own story and how he's helping people right now. His, his, the work that he's doing on Instagram is really extraordinary. And we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. But Ryan is, is really helping out a lot of people just by sharing himself in his own journey. So Ryan, thank you so much for joining us on the Anthony Bradley Show. Thank you for having me, Anthony. It's a pleasure to be here. So you are from uh, Crystal River, Florida. Where is that exactly? It's a small town about an hour north of Tampa. It's called Citrus County that we got Crystal River, we got Homosassa, and we got Inverness, but we're known to have manatees here. So if you ever want to, if you want to come see some manatees, come to Crystal River, Florida. Yeah, I was just about to ask you if somebody were going to visit Crystal River, Florida, what would they do? What's the, what's the main attraction there? So, so manatees is, is one of those things. There's a lot of springs here and a lot of tourists come to kayak and swim with the manatees. Excellent. And have you done that? Oh, of course. <laughs> Too many times. Great. And I want to go back and get to your story in, in just a moment, but just to sort of help people kind of frame exactly where you are right now. So tell us what you're doing. You're, you're 28 years old and what are you doing with, with your life right now? So right now I've been with, he's my buddy. We knew each other in high school, but um, never really hung out we knew of each other it's a really small town so long story short he knew i've always done art so he re he just started a painting company and reached out to me and wanted to know if i wanted to paint with him and i'm like paint houses i've never painted a house before and he was like that's fine let's do it and so a little over a year me and him have been painting houses we just got done painting an apartment complex in gainesville florida so we're growing and 
getting bigger, but that's what I'm doing for work right now. Wow, that, that's incredible. It sounds like you all are, are on the brink of, of turning a major corner. You're about to get really busy if you're doing big projects like that. that. That's really, really great. And I mentioned earlier that you are someone who is sitting in the, in a, in the midst of, of, of sobriety. What sorts of substances are you, have you come out of sobriety? How, how many days have you been sober and sober from what? So my main addiction was towards alcohol. And I've been a little over 18 months sober. Wow. Okay. I did try other things like smoke some weed. Um, I was around people that did coke. I may have tried pills here and there, but alcohol was my main thing for sure. And what was your alcohol of choice? I battled it for so long. I mean, when it was getting bad the first time, I was ended up probably drinking a fifth of Jack Daniels a night. And that happened for a while. And then would try to get sober, do some rehab here and there. And then it would move to anywhere from just heavy alcohol percentage, beers, white claws, because I thought it was healthier, whatever. It was just, but, you know, drinking 20 or 15 of them a night and ain't healthy for you. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It's not fruit juice. Uh, that's that's no, for sure. No, man. Yeah. Now, you know, one of the things that stands out to me whenever I see someone and and I live in New York City, I see I see addicts all the time. In fact, I can I can walk out of my building right now and within 50 or 60 yards of my building, I'm going to see some addicts. And every time I I see a man or a woman who is in the midst of a a, a bender, you know, I think at one point that was a child who was eating ice cream and playing games and being silly and watching cartoons. And then here they are sitting on the sidewalk with slumped over. And I'm always curious to know how did they get from, you know, being a, a regular child like everybody and in this moment. And so what I, what I like to do is sort of go back and, talk a little bit about your own story, your own sort of biography, and just sort of unpack how we got from you being a kid to now 28 years old in, in recovery, experiencing sobriety, and trying to build your, your life back. So when you were a kid, just, just by way of, of introduction, what were some of your favorite memories when you were little? What, what, what comes to mind when you think about the, the, good, the good times? What just coming off the dome, it would be spending time with either childhood friends that I'm still friends with or going on family vacations, just little things. I mean, I've always struggled with, I started going to a therapist and I've always struggled with remembering those things, actually. So it's actually hard to think back that long, but certain things do come to mind, like going to Disney or being having recess with one of my best friends or something, but just little things like that. And how, how would you describe your, your household growing up? Were your parents together? Were they, were they split up? Do you remember? So my mom and dad got a divorce when I was two. So of course I, I don't, I don't remember that happening. I do remember being with my mom most of the time. And then I would go see my dad 
I think it was every other weekend. So it would go from there and then bringing up my dad, he would, he would do, just do weird stuff that I, I do recall bad things happening at my dad's house. I still talk to him. I've never accused him of anything, but I remember him, let's say like dressing up in scary mask and hiding under my bed or taking me to Texas Chainsaw Massacre when I was like six years old or just weird stuff, always trying to scare me and playing mind games. I would say my dad is a weird guy. I love him. We don't have the best relationship, but that's how I remember my childhood with him. On my mom's side, I remember being happier here and I still live by my mom. So she was just definitely in my life more, raised me. I got a stepdad. I call him my father also. So, yeah. And do you remember what age you were when your mom got remarried or or, or grade? I would say I was roughly around probably six. Oh, so pretty, pretty soon after that, not too, not too long after. I think so. I mean, yeah. I, I can't technically recall, but yeah. You weren't like 10 or 12, like in middle school. No. It was earlier than that. No. Yeah. Yes. So most of your childhood, you remember them being together and being a couple and you living in their house. Yeah. So like, I never remember my mom and my biological dad being together. I always remember my mom being with my stepfather. And when you were growing up, your stepfather, sorry, your, your father was, was within an hour of you or or further away. Yeah. uh, Sarasota, Florida. So it's about two hours away. Okay. All right. And then when you were in middle school, did you still visit your dad? I stopped visiting my dad when I was about 15. You're 15. Okay. Yeah. And when I was in middle school, I'm, I'm kind of weird because I actually had a great time in middle school. <laughs> I actually loved it. It was actually the end of when school was fun because I, had, I was in a great group of friends. We just laughed all the time and ate candy all day. It was great. It was, yeah. it was great. Those were really good years. I recognize that my story is a bit is a bit different than most people's. And how would you describe your your middle school year, sort of grades six, seven, eight, before before high school? How did that go for you? So I did go to a small school. I went to a a Christian school, and good things about that was. You know, you always had a good group of friends that you could hang out with. Bad things that I didn't like about that was everybody knew your business. Small town drama, but definitely small school drama. But I remember I was never the best in school. And I remember I started struggling. I'm probably was fifth grade. I witnessed my little brother get hit by a car. So that dramatically just made me stop caring about and stop caring in school and just wanting to know if he was okay. So when I hear middle school, I kind of just think back of, oh, my little brother, Cody, getting hit by a car. How many, how many siblings do you have? I have four. four. Well, I, I, I have one full biological brother. And then my mom has another son with my stepdad and then two 
stepbrothers. Okay. And so where are you in the age ranking uh, of, of your siblings and half siblings? In the middle. You're in the I middle. Think of, I, think, yeah, I think it's 20. I'm 28. My older brother is about to be 30. And then it's 39 and 42. Okay. And your brother gets hit by a car. And yes. you were in the fifth grade. And you mm-hmm. saw that. And when you say hit, I'm assuming it was a bad hit, not just like a bump. Yeah, it was it was a rough hit. I was uh, we were about to go to Disney. And for some reason, my older brother it would be my biological full brother, Richie. He was taking him to go across the street to go fishing. And they were standing in the middle of the road. And I was in um, I was in, the, I would say, the, the parking lot of the house that's right on like a main highway it was it was like at a family beach house and they were in the middle and then i just saw my brother take off and he got whacked and was he hospitalized yeah so he was a helicopter came they had to airlift them and then he was in a coma for i wanted to say like three or four months they said they said he wasn't gonna live so this was really really bad yeah so basically they said he was too young to have surgery and the bleed in his brain was too deep to do the surgery. So, I mean, like it was just pray that something amazing happens because they couldn't do anything. And he came out of a coma. He, he came out of a coma. Funny story. He always loved listening to 50 Cent. <laughs> I think he was in pre-K, but uh, we put 50 cent after like three or four months on his head. And he started bobbing his head in the hospital and came out of the coma. Are you serious? I'm dead ass. <laughs> I have probably never in my life heard a story that what brought someone out of a coma was 50 cent. In the club, 50 cent. <laughs> wow. 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 And so you saw that happen. And this was you know, those three or four months, you were probably, as you mentioned, right, constantly thinking about your brother and probably not able to focus in school, not able to concentrate. Is that fair? What was it? What was that like while he was in a coma, you trying to do school? Yeah, I was, I just felt hopeless because I wanted to be there and help. And, you know, it's just like, if something bad happens to anyone, it's constantly on their mind. And that's what it was like. And I had teachers come up to me since it was small school and say, hey, I know you're struggling. And they give me extra time on work. But honestly, I just didn't care because I didn't know what was going to happen. Of course, of course, you didn't care. Why would you? I mean, there's more important things than this stupid addition equation. Yeah, exactly. And and reading a short story and taking this dumb quiz. Right. I mean, come on. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not that you were just, it's not like you were just struggling. Your brother's in a coma. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, it looks, it looks pretty dire and you have, you all have no idea what, what's going to happen. And because you saw it, you're kind of replaying the memory of the events yeah. of that day and the following days and everyone panicking. And so, so you're, you're trying to, you can't do school because you're in this cycle. It's memory cycle, right? Sort of revisiting. Yeah, you replan it, and it, it's intruding on your day. Mm-hmm. And so, if if you told me that your grades were great, 
and that, and that school was awesome and that you did well, I would think there's something wrong with this guy because that would be abnormal. Yeah. So, yeah. So you, you acted, yeah. you acted normally. He came, so he, he came, he came out of a coma and uh, were you, were you better able to do school or, or did you still struggle? Were you still distracted and. I want to say I started doing better once he started doing better. I mean, you know, months and I don't remember how long it lasted or how long he was in the hospital, but with physical therapy and things like that. But I mean, I graduated out of middle school, so <laughs> that's all that matters, right? Yep. Yep. You got out. And, and how's he doing now? He's actually doing good. I mean, you'd never know. He's fully recovered. Fully recovered. I honestly don't, I want to say he might still have, I don't know how your brain works. I don't know if that hole was repaired, but I mean, he's, he just finished college in Orlando, Florida. And so, I mean, yeah, you, you never know. Wow. That's, that's, that's really extraordinary. With a brain that young, it has the, it's pretty resilient. And so there, there is, there, it has the potential to repair itself. When he when he was that young, if that had happened when he was like you know fifty or sixty or eighty, he probably uh, would have been a goner. Yeah, probably probably would have. Yeah, absolutely. And so one one of the questions I I like to ask people is, and and, and maybe maybe this was the answer uh, for you. When did you realize that that life is not is not easy, or that or that that life you know things in life can really suck? Like, uh oh. This is not the way the world's supposed to be. That was definitely one of them. I think that was probably the biggest disaster that I've witnessed and had to go through things or go through that. Other than that, I just, being in middle school and maybe early high school, just simple things that people go through, like being bullied and stuff. I mean, that sucks for everyone. And so that's when I would realize that. And then being bullied and stuff was when I would realize, you know, life sucks. It ain't perfect. And what kind of things were you, were you bullied for? I was always overweight, not overweight, but I also have, I have a uh, colon disease. So I was on a uh, prednisone for months at a time. And it would, that um it's a steroid so it blows you up so it was just like i had that moon face and um i actually just saw a picture of my old driver's license and you wouldn't recognize me i'm just like wow but you know just little things like that so that picture on instagram i've seen it that actually is you oh, so that that was my mug shop but yes that was uh, i mean but you were you were kind of that was chubby you Oh, that was, that was overweight. Yeah. That was probably obese me (laughs) from, and just from alcohol. I remember, I remember I still would, you know, I guess starve myself and just drink, but over a hundred pounds just put on from drinking beer and white claws and yeah. So when did that start for you? Do you remember when you started drinking? So I started drinking like vodka and Jack and all that when I was my second year in college. So probably when I was 19. 
And then I just realized, started drinking heavy, I guess I should say. When I started drink my first drink, is that what you were asking? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. First drink was probably, I'd say, 14. How'd you get it? I want to say just probably in my step my stepfather's uh, cabinet. And then, like, I always knew it, it was just, like, a thing maybe I'd do on the weekends or with, like, one of my best friends at the time. Like, oh, let's go make a glass. <laughs> You know, and it, it tasted disgusting and all of that. But I mean, you get get that little buzz and you're like, oh, I feel funny. And so were you a part of the party scene or was there a party scene in high school? I mean, probably. In, I mean, were you at a Christian school also in high school? So, yes. And there was a scene. You'd be surprised. I mean, it was probably one of the worst schools here. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I guess that's how it goes. But uh there there was a small party scene that would meet and have little house parties and i was always there so i used to teach at a christian school i taught ninth grade bible for three years in philadelphia okay. and i can tell you for a fact because I, I i'm also a part of that world was part of that world it's no different no than the big public school in fact Whatever people do in the big public school, students also do at the Christian school. I had a group of guys who came to my class at 9 a.m. every day, just completely blazed. They smoked up every single day, every single day. I remember it, right? Just thinking about this thing about it, I remember their faces and their bloodshot eyes. They came oh every single day. And this class was like at nine something in the morning. So these guys in the Christian school would smoke up before and after school every day, every Mm -hmm. single day. And often a lot of parents are like, hey, my kid's in trouble. I'm going to take them to the Christian school and then the Christian school will keep them from getting in trouble. And I'm like, no, 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 listen, (laughs) the (laughs) last place you want to bring them if your kid's struggling is a Christian school. Because they're going to find the people, right, who were doing that and end up probably worse than they would be at the public school. I, I totally agree that the same or worse. <laughs> Absolutely. Probably worse, right? It, I, remember, I remember a few times I I think I would drink at lunchtime and go to Bible class or something drunk. <laughs> yeah. You have more incentive to go harder. Yeah. Right. At the Christian exactly. school, because you're like, right? Like, look at me. And so I've, I've, I often found those environments more challenging in terms of overconsumption and substance abuse than just sort of in the, in the regular population. So you, you went through high school, and I guess for all intents and purposes, you were just a regular high school kid. You said your grades weren't awesome. And is that, is that fair? Yeah. They, I mean, C's, C's get degrees. Okay. <laughs> and, and what do you attribute that to? I just hated studying. I mean, I honestly don't, I would do good in certain things if I enjoyed it. Like for some reason I enjoy writing. So English class would be great, but 
if I had to read anything, I'm pretty sure I'm dyslexic. So, I mean, stuff like that, terrible. And, and just, yeah, I just hated studying. I thought it was a waste of time. And so you graduated from high school and then you decided to go to college? So, yes, I went to college in Gainesville, Florida, almost got my AA and then decided I wanted to do physical therapy assistant. So I drug that out because that was also when I was drinking heavy. So, but I, I drug that out for a few years and I think I have like a year left to finish that program and I can actually get that degree. And so let's go back to when you started drinking in college. So when you were starting college, that's when, that's, is, that's when the drinking got heavy. Is that, is that right? Yes, this would be the second year of college. What what happened that escalated your drinking? I want to just say anxiety started getting really bad again, like hardcore, like uh, disassociation or like derealization. What what does disassociation mean? What do you mean by that? When I say disassociation or mainly derealization is what I link it to. It's like a feeling as if everything's like a dream or like you're not real. And so like drinking and supposedly I've done research on it. I've been to therapy about it. And supposedly it's a trauma response to keep you safe or make you feel safe, but you don't feel safe when it's happening. But I always just realized drinking just knocks it all away. And that started happening, I forgot to mention, that started happening probably when I was 16, when I uh, smoked fake weed. You remember fake that? weed? Like spice, stuff like that. That's when that, that triggered all that. And so... So when you, when you were 16 and you smoked the fake weed, that's when it triggered the disassociation? hmm And... How often would you do that when you were in high school? Would I smoke? Yeah. It, uh, that fake stuff was once and only. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was uh, at dosage. That, was, that stuff was ridiculous. And I was smoking weed here and there before then, but I never had a problem with that. But that, that And then so I cut smoking out hundred percent and just started drinking. Okay. Now, did your, did your mom know at the time that you were drinking? Maybe here and there, but just as like maybe a normal high schooler student would do if they're trying to sneak some alcohol. Right. So you're, you're, in, you're in college and you're starting to drink more heavily. Were you drinking by yourself? Was it part of a group? Was there a party scene? How did that, how did that escalate? So yeah, we were. It would have been second second year of college. So like we would all drink a lot together, whether we we go out or drink in our apartment. But it definitely escalated to me drinking by myself quickly. Whether they were studying in their room, I was making drinks and watching TV out in the living room, just because that made me feel safe it just it just made every made me feel like it took away the anxiety it took away everything it numbed everything didn't have to deal with the derealization or anything 
So I just felt normal. I felt like, and then I would, after that, I was, I would start blacking out too much. And when you were drinking alone, were you ever drinking during the day? I'd always get through the day somehow. I mean, and it, I could barely drive some days. It was so bad. Like I needed to drink so bad, but I could manage. I never wanted to, I worked in a hospital. I, I mean, I knew it was wrong, so I didn't want to do that. But right when I got off work, maybe in the parking lot at five o'clock, I'd have a water bottle full of vodka or something and start drinking it on my way home. On my way home. And you associated that initial desire to drink with anxiety. Was there anything in particular that brought that anxiety on or, or had you always struggled with anxiety since your brother's car accident? Since my brother's car accident, since, and also, I don't know what kind of fear, but like, uh, fear, fear of the derealization. And also, uh, my dad messing with me. I'd always have anxiety from that. So, so you, you use the word derealization. What is, what does that mean? I don't know the uh, definition of Google, but is that's what no, I don't, yeah, I don't need the technical definition, but when you, when you say that, what comes to mind for you? Like I was saying, just like the feeling of like you're in a movie or you're not real. Okay. So, so there's, there's a sense of, of, of alcohol, both numbing you, but also making you feel like you're in some alternative world. Like you're so not, alcohol, you're not here. So I would feel like that if I didn't drink. If you did not drink, you would feel like I'm not here. This isn't normal. Yes. I don't yes. belong. I'm in an alternative universe. And so you would drink to feel normal. To feel normal. Yes. I just, I just want to feel like a happy person. No anxiety, no stress, no derealization, whatever you want to call it. Just help me get through the day. And so you were drinking, you were working and drinking every day, every other day. How, how, how frequently was it? It was. I would say probably every night, every day. And managed to get up and go to work at 8 a.m. But I was probably, I was late a lot of times. I was started getting to that point. But every day, definitely. And so at every night you were, you were drinking and then that would affect your work the next day. How would you function in the morning hungover? How did that work? It sucked. <laughs> I mean, alcoholics, if they want to do it, they're going to do it. I mean, I learned how to function. And then I think I did that from 19... 20 and 21 and then that's when my parents realized I, uh, I was an alcoholic when I was 21 after they took me to I went to Vegas for my 21st what happened in Vegas on that trip hardcore drinking but um what how they found out was when I'd come home and visit I just store all my liquor bottles that I would drink even on the weekends in my old closet. And it was, it was a lot. I mean, I, I could, I could drink a fifth of night. I was saying. So after 
a few months and they found it and uh they were like you got a problem <laughs> they're like hey this this is not a recycling center yeah right it's <laughs> not I mean, where that goes <laughs> yeah are you bringing your recycling in the house i see you find all these <laughs> bottles right now i'm actually this is post-consumption my consumption i i didn't pick these bottles up to go take them somewhere this is stuff i've consumed right it, yeah that, that's what i'm drinking every night <laughs> and then and then had you been the rehab at that point did they take you to rehab was is have you ever been been to rehab or when it when it the rehab stuff start so rehab started when i was 21 i did a i begged them to let me do a outpatient rehab so i would draw so i moved home from gainesville because to stay sober i think i stopped going to college was working here and started doing the outpatient rehab and i'd drive back and forth to gainesville maybe three times four times a week to do the outpatient stuff and then come back here and then i finished that program i think even the people that do the program said you finished it the quickest out of anybody we've ever seen in our life and that's because i knew i was going to start drinking again afterwards <laughs> if you want to know the truth Right. So you're like, listen, what box do I need to check? What exercise oh, yeah. do I, I need was... to do? What do I need to say so I can get the heck out of here and get back to, to my girl? You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so how many, how many times have you, have you done rehab programs? So I did that outpatient one, and then I did... I did... So just one more time after my arrest. When I was, I went back to rehab when I was 26. 26. So I did, I did a, it was, I did about seven months in it. Okay. So you mentioned an arrest. What, what happened there? So I was hardcore drinking for, if I was 26, I think I started after I got out of the inpatient rehab, I think I may have stayed sober for a few months, but worked my way up to slowly doing it on the weekends and then weekends lasted. So by 20, I'd say by 23, I was hardcore drinking again. So 24, 25, 26. And then by 26, was the arrest. Okay. So yeah. Um, that's when you saw that picture of me when I was probably over a hundred pounds. And then what happened there was I had no contact, uh, contact with my mom or my stepdad or any of my family. And I didn't want part of anybody's life. I was living with a family friend and, uh, but anyways, back to the arrest, I actually hit somebody on a bike while driving. I didn't know I hit somebody until about a mile down the road. Somebody was flagging me. So I pulled over and took my keys out of the ignition, put them on the ground and sat there until the cops got there. And they were like, you hit somebody. And I'm like, no, I didn't. And they were like, look at your truck. And I'm like, that was already there. I hit a stop sign the other day. Like, that's how bad it was getting. Like, I was hitting stuff while driving all the time. And so they took me to jail. I was in jail, maybe I'd say about 24 hours. My mom bailed me out. 
And I remember just her picking me up. I, I walked from the jail to a gas station and she picked me up at the gas station and she just had like an, Oh shit. And like, she didn't recognize me because she hasn't seen me in year or yeah, probably years, months. She knew I had a problem. I broke her. I was, her heart was broken, but also right at the time I have a felony and a hit and run and I could be going to jail for a long time. And I didn't even know if the person was alive. So that's 18 years off the bat right there. And so what happened in that case? What did you just hit the vehicle? Did you hit the person? So, so the girl was on a bike. She was um, on a bicycle. She was on a bicycle. So what happened was, I guess I swerved around the boyfriend and I swerved back in and popped her. Thank the Lord. No injuries. Before I went, to before I went to court, my attorney said you need to do an inpatient rehab. And long story short, it'll make your case look better, but you also need to get sober. And so that's what I did for seven or eight months. I did that inpatient program and completed that. And then completed that and stayed sober for about two months and then relapsed again. And then from there, I probably almost got to the almost as heavy as I was again, but I wasn't driving. I mean, I had a DUI, so I didn't care about driving. I was riding a bicycle everywhere, but I stopped talking to my parents again. I stopped talking to all my friends again, and it was just a loop again, I, uh, and I didn't care. So I, I, I'd ride my bike a mile and a half every day. I'd sleep all day. I have jobs here and there doing certain things. So I have money, but usually I'd sleep till five o'clock all day, ride my bike to the gas station, get a 12 pack of white claws and four or eight tall boys and natty daddies like, and drink that every night. And one day after doing that again for till I got sober. So eight till 18 months ago, um, I was supposed to have, a doctor's appointment with my mom. I agreed to go and get the shot that makes you sick when you drink. And I ended up that night somehow in a pig pen when it was in Florida, it does get cold sometimes. So, uh, it was 32 degrees out and I'm not answering my phone at 7am and they found me in a pig pen trashed. And so my two stepbrothers came and said, you need to go to detox, man. And I said, all right, I'm getting drunk on the way. And I said, I agree. I need to go to detox. And, um, I know there's a lot going on in the story, but, uh, I went to detox and then that was when I finally got sober for good. And when you say you were in a pig pen, like pigs were in the pen. Yeah. I ended up, I was cuddling with a pig in 32 degree weather. Wow. I mean, I, and I didn't care. I was unrecognizable. Uh, I didn't care. I don't even remember how I got there. But I thought for some reason it was a good idea to go sleep in a pig pen. I mean, pigs are warm. It was cold out. It makes a lot of sense, actually. <laughs> Not when you have a house. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. That's true. I had a bed to live in. <laughs> I guess if you're homeless, that makes sense. But if you actually have a home, that's kind of strange. 
Yeah. And so where were you? Were you living with your, your mom at that time? This last time? No, last I, was time living, yeah. I was living with. When I say family friend, it's it's a woman that helped raise me and my other brother. And I look at her as a mother, but she was always an easy, she was easy to push over. So she knew I was drinking, but she'd let me stay there for free. And I would take advantage of her because I know my mom or none of my friends would put up with me. So why not take advantage of somebody that loves you that's going to let you stay in their house? I mean, that's the alcoholic brain speaking. Now you have, you have often, I've seen some of this on Instagram. You, you often made the connection between trauma and addiction. How do you think those, those are related? Trauma and addiction, being able to numb everything out. Alcohol, just whether it was me not wanting to think about something in the past or something my dad did or like like the car accident or something little or small or, or feeling not real one day, alcohol will fix it for that time being. So that's where my addiction would come from was that. And so basically tell me if, if this is, if this is right, you would drink to feel normal, but then it wears off. And then you start having to drink more and more and more. Right. And so in the beginning, a little bit made you feel normal. And then you had to keep increasing the volume to feel normal. Exactly. And the next thing you know, you're drinking a whole fifth or two. Yeah. Yeah. And then I don't know if you saw on my Instagram, but my even this last time, my whole body was... 99%. I went to the doctor. 99% of my body was covered in psoriasis because I we didn't know it was because of the drinking. But a month after I quit drinking, my whole body cleared up. Gone. So, I mean, like, and the doctor said they've never seen anything like that. They've never seen it clear up that fast. I'm like, they were like, what'd you take? And I said, I just stopped drinking. Now, you've probably had people just say, hey, just stop. Of course. Right. Hey, why don't you just. Well, hey, man. Hey, hey, man. Just quit drinking. Yeah. Right. You're like, all right, I'll just quit drinking. Right. What do people not understand about about addiction so that they won't say things like that? Because I think most people. Well, for one thing, everybody's addicted to something. So if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, my gosh, how's that happen? If you're an American, I'm telling you right now, you're at least addicted to sugar at minimum, yeah. right? If, if you're an American, you're at least addicted to sugar and probably carbs, which is why you got to have bread or some kind of carb at every single meal, because that's, that's kind of how we do it in America. So everybody's addicted to something, right? I agree. Yeah. And so in, 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 your, in your case, you know, when people say, well, if you see the alcohol is hurting you, you're, you're cuddling up with pigs. Why don't you just stop, bro? You know, why, why, why don't you just quit? What do people not understand about the way addiction works? It's two things. One thing is, and it's what I tell people when people reach out to me now, it's you actually have to want it for yourself. Why do you think people go to rehab eight times or for me, two or three times? Like you have to want it for yourself. 
and see like you have to actually realize you're killing yourself, but you're also killing your family, having them watch it for you or watch you kill yourself or because addiction. I mean, I put my family through so much hell and I'm lucky enough to be sitting in her in their house right now having this interview with you. But the other thing is it's a disease. It's in your brain that you can't stop. And then it's like when you do stop, the withdrawals happen. And then it's just like something in your brain that you need it. That's why I suggest if you're a hardcore drinker or a hardcore addict, you at least go to a detox where they wean you off it. It's just triggered. It's it's hard to explain. I mean, but if you don't realize that you want it for yourself and then you're not going to do it or you're not going to stay sober, in my opinion. For you, what was withdrawal like? What do you experience when you withdraw? You can't even think. Yeah, I mean, like, like you're going crazy. If you think your anxiety's bad, go through a withdrawal and have anxiety. Like it's a 24 seven panic attack. It's your hands are shaking. You can barely walk. Some days when I was withdrawing, just because I didn't have alcohol for eight hours, I could barely ride a bike to go get more. And it gets, and it's sad to see. And it's sad to look back and be like, wow, I was that bad. But once you, once you, once you're in the addiction, you don't, you don't see it. You don't care. And you see yourself every day in the mirror. So I didn't even realize I was looking different, you know? And so looking forward to the present, I mean, you've, you've struggled off and on with, you know, when you were younger, being in rehab, getting out, relapsing, being triggered again, having anxiety, memories, all that stuff comes back. What are some of the things that have helped you stay sober now? And then secondly, you know, when people hear, when people hear that you're, that you're in sobriety, what does that actually mean? Right. So, so first question, what helps you stay sober? Then secondly, when, when people hear sobriety, they, they, they should think what exactly. Okay. Well, what helps me stay sober is, and I know for the long run, it, I'll have to even work on this, but I made my new addiction working. But with that, I could also just say staying busy, but definitely working helps me stay sober. But if I'm not working, I love connecting with nature now, being outside, hiking. And when also people ask me, how do I stay sober? I don't push religion down anyone but i i always say praying i mean what's it gonna hurt say a prayer to whoever the hell you want to but it helps me and then what uh you said what does sobriety mean to me yeah what what is what is what does that word mean because i think here's 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 what my my perception is that when people hear sobriety they think oh he's not struggling anymore or, oh, he's sober, right? I mean, sober as in no longer relapses, doesn't want to taste it. He's good because he's in sobriety. And I'm thinking, I don't, I don't know that that's what sobriety actually means. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, for those who, who 
are trying to get their loved ones into sobriety or want to talk to people that they know about, about being sober, how should they think about what, what a life of sobriety is actually like? What keeps me staying in sobriety, I'll be honest, some days of sobriety suck. And I honestly feel like people will be lying if they never, if they say they never thought about drinking again. I mean, it has to cross your mind at some point or smoking or whatever, which I do. But so sobriety doesn't mean you don't struggle because I struggle daily. Sobriety means I'm continuing to not put myself back in that addiction and put my family and put myself in that pain again. Because even if I have a bad day or a bad week or a bad month, I can go back and look at those mug shots or something and say, well, you're not doing that bad. You're not at rock bottom again. You have a job. You have a house now. You're doing something. So, you're I not, mean, you're not you're not cuddling up with with some pigs. I ain't cuddling with some pigs tonight. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, I feel like everybody in sobriety still struggles. Um, some, and I'm not calling anybody out. That's my opinion, but it does get easier over time. You find easier ways to cope with if you have the urge to do something. And mine is just, I, I stay busy. I get busy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's good, right. To sort of have something to replace that, that, that mechanism that helps you. And I think in some ways not feel or relive or engage whatever it is that would cause you to want to drink in the first place to replace that with something else. And I think, I think you you said it right. I mean, I was going to ask you, do you do yoga? Do you do meditation? Because you need to do something else. It's not like, right. Tell me, tell me if this is correct. It's not like you just need to stop drinking. You need to start doing something else. Is that, is that fair? Uh, I, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, I thought so many times getting sober would solve the problem, solve my problems of anxiety, solve my mental health issues. I thought everything would go away. I'd be a different person. Now, sobriety makes everything worse in the beginning, in my opinion. I mean, you, you have nothing. You, you can't go have a drink when you're having a bad day. So life sucks. You have to figure out. And life, I mean, life's not out to get you, but life sucks. <laughs> so you have to figure out what to do to make yourself happier and how to get through those hard decisions without picking up a bottle or smoking or whatever your addiction is. So, yeah, absolutely. Right. So you've been, I mean, think about it. I mean, for, for in your case, began in high school off and on. 18, 19, it really got heavy. You're now in your early to mid 20s and you have developed habits of coping with anxiety and depression and discomfort and fear and loneliness and whatever, right? And, and alcohol was the thing that you went to to save you from feeling things so you could, so you could go back to being, being normal. And your body has, has completely attached that to dopamine. Yep. Right. So exactly. now it feels good. 
And so, and so your physical body is now habituated to whenever I'm experiencing discomfort, I need a drink. Yeah. So it's not like that goes away. You have to do something else when you experience discomfort. And I saw on, on Instagram that you had this really impressive, I mean, this is really, really, really brilliant comment. You talked about being addicted, get, getting your dopamine from good things. Do you remember, remember that post? Yes. What, what are some of, the, some of the good things that people can get their dopamine from? So, yeah, things I've learned was what helps me is being outside, uh, going, for, going for a hike, but that, I mean, that could be for anybody. Like if you like run and go for a run, cold showers help, um, eating healthy, organic foods, not eating fast food. I mean, drink a hell of a lot of water. I mean, that's one thing that has helped me so much. And even when I was trying to sh- uh, shred off those pounds in the beginning, I was drinking a gallon a day. And I mean, that helps you lose weight. That helps you get healthier. But, um, definitely nature and just outside and being active and things like that to replace the alcohol and the substances, uh, substances and things like that. So you have developed a platform on Instagram, which is really brilliant. I will give people the information on, on, on my Patreon account. I'll link all that there. It's really, really brilliant. And that's how I, I, I found you. Can you explain to us what your Instagram account is about? What the profile is? Like, what are you, what are you doing there? So, um, yeah, so I started probably, I'd say roughly a year ago, I started making just sobriety videos, but with humor. Because that's how I, I cope with things is with humor. And so most of them are with a little bit of dark humor. They'll give it with a little twist. So if you get offended easy, don't go there. <laughs> but no, I mean, honestly, there's something for everybody there. But I just like making videos that I feel like people can connect with. Like I was going to make one a day and talk about, make a joke about never being mentally stable. Like, yeah, we we all we all probably have a day that we don't that that we do feel like that will never be mentally stable again, but it'll pass. I mean, so I, I just try to make videos that connect with each one of us that struggle with anxiety, struggle with depression, struggle with addiction, definitely. Whether it's alcohol, whether it's pills, anything, because anyone with an addiction, we can all relate to each other. It doesn't have to be the same drug. And what, what kind of response have you have you been getting from your posts? Um, I've been getting a lot of good feedback. I mean, it was a, it was a little bit crazy. Uh, like this past week, like videos started taking off and I try to reply to everybody on my Instagram, like when they reach out and ask for tips. And I think I do a pretty good job. <laughs> it's just I think I've gained. I think I had a thousand followers last week and now I'm at like 15,000 and it's just like, wow, people actually are really connecting with this and people, people like this, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I was looking at your account 
the other day and you actually gained a thousand followers in 24 hours. Yeah. That's how I noticed you went from 13.1 to like 14.2 in like a day. So these are these are really, really taken off. Do you have a sense of the numbers in terms of how many views some of these are getting? Yeah, I mean, roughly after 24 hours, it could be anywhere from 20,000 views to I think I have a few that have a, a few million. I think my top one has about 12 million. And so it, it, it blows my mind. But if that 12 million people or even the likes of 600,000 likes. So 600,000 people can relate to it. Maybe. I mean, that blows my mind, but that makes me happy. Cause I want, I mean, if I just helped even half of 600,000 people, that's my goal. And this has all happened for you pretty quickly, right? I mean, you said in the last, well, how many months? It, it kind of uh, blew up? Oh, I'd say the last week and a half. Oh, just in the last week and a half. It's you went from a thousand to, 15,000 because I was making videos and I was, I was getting 5,000 views maybe two weeks ago. And I'm like, heck yeah. I mean, if, if I'm getting, if I'm helping five or 5,000 people, I'm helping 5,000 people. So, but yeah, in the last week and a half, it's kind of taken off. (laughs) I'm looking at it right now. You're at 15,000 even right now which is incredible because two days ago when I looked, it was 13, 13.1. So you are, something's happening right now. I think people are connecting. I think both with your story, as I've said to you before, the way that you present the struggle with addiction and anxiety. I think, I think what's so good about your account is that you humanize it. There's no shame on there. I think because you add humor, you present it in such a way that people can, can relate to it. People can, even if they don't have, it doesn't matter what the addiction is. I think that people can really understand particularly what, what some of those struggles are just because of the way that you, that you present it. And that humor, I think really lightens people, it opens them up. It makes them probably more comfortable talking about these things in general. So I, I really, I really commend what you're doing on on instagram what's what's the name of your of your account on instagram just so the people who are listening can go right to it ryan draws with uh four s's so r-y-a-n-d-r-a-w-s-s-s-s it's really extraordinary i i highly highly recommend this this account it's blowing up right now I wanted to go ahead and get an interview in with Ryan before he blew up and got too big, and I would have to, <laughs> no. and, and I would, I would, I would have to, I would have to go in and 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 contact his assistant uh, in order to get in order to get some some time with him. You have this phrase that you use that there's some merch there. There's a T-shirt. I'm gonna tell you right now. I want the T-shirt. I want the mug. I want the poster. I might get it tattooed. I'm not even kidding about that one. You have you have this phrase that your anxiety is lying to you. Yes. Explain what that phrase means and 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 why do you why do you use it? So throughout all this all these years of the drinking and everything, I've always 
blamed it on anxiety and like in rehab why are you drinking anxiety you can't say that ryan everybody has anxiety well but basically it's whatever's going on in your head your anxiety is telling you i mean you're going to get through it because you get through it each day does that make sense I mean, like you've always made it through a panic attack or an anxiety attack, whether it lasted an hour or it lasted five minutes, you make it through every time. And however big your mind is making the issue, it's not that big. It's your mind's crazy. It'll make you think some crazy things. But so that's where I got that. And the front of the T-shirt actually says you are bigger than what is making you anxious and little writing. So, like, so what, what happens is that our anxiety, you're saying, tells us this is huge, whatever, whatever the it is, like this moment, like, this yeah. episode, right? And if you don't take care of this and numb this, you're going to die. Exactly. You're going to die or you need to go drink right now or you need to go right. smoke. You need to go take a pill, something. You need to get rid of this. You need to numb it. You need to you need to excise it from your life you need to get rid of this feeling right now because if you don't get rid of this feeling you are something bad is going to happen so so go go take care of it not later right now right now yep but it's all a lie exactly like your anxiety is lying to you it's it's going to be okay that's what i mean and i have days where i'm far from perfect and when i tell myself your anxiety is lying to you sometimes it doesn't work but you have to keep reminding yourself that, you know? Now you, you mentioned earlier, I didn't, I did not expect to hear this part of the story. I was, I was actually surprised. Uh, you said that, well, first we, we had to get off soon cause you have to go to church tonight. But then secondly, I didn't, I had no idea about the Christian school story in terms of that you were a, a student at a Christian school. How in the world did, your Christians, your Christian community, like how do, how did they treat you all these years? As you've sort of, on the one hand, struggled with sobriety, sort of kind of wrestled with that. But then like right now, the sort of discussions you're having on Instagram, are you getting any blowback? Are people saying anything? Like what's that? I've actually had a few people from my graduation, like my graduating class, reach out to me and be like, like, I'm dealing with the same thing. Thank you. Or like, I need to get my addiction under control. Like, thank you for reaching out or like for posting this, but, um, but nothing bad. I mean, I haven't heard from the pastor or anything yet, (laughs) like saying, don't come back. (laughs) That's great. As we we wrap up here, I'm I'm wondering if, if there is, is something that there's a message that you would, you could give to somebody who might be listening, who is 16, 17, 18, maybe someone in college who is on the brink of wrestling with, with addiction, particularly alcohol, or is currently in the throes of, of being fully addicted to alcohol. What's, what's something that, you know, if you were standing in front of an audience of, of, of students, who were on the brink of this or, 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 or recognize they have, they have addiction. What, what are, what are some things that you would, you would want to tell them? I would say 
if you if you're struggling, you reach out to someone, whether it's a friend, a therapist, your mom, your dad, somebody. But even before you do that, you, you like I can't like you you have to want it for yourself. Like and people like I'll say this really quickly. People get like mad at me because I don't do AA or NA or anything. And they're like, why? And I'm like, and no, and no like no bash against them, no hate, like people, it helps other people. But with just my opinion, if you want to be sober that bad, you're going to be sober. So that's where I come from. And I don't like taking help from others. If that makes sense, but you have to want it for yourself, but you also have to reach out and, in my opinion, tell somebody to hold you accountable. Also, you're not alone. There's millions of people struggling with addiction, but it's never it's never too late to start on day one because one day is better than day zero. And let's say that you are a friend of someone uh, who is struggling with addiction. What, what, are, what are some things that friends can do to help you persist and persevere in your sobriety? What, what, what kind of things can people do in practice? That's a hard, that, that's a hard one. Cause some, some people aren't, aren't going to want to hear it when they're in, a, in addiction. I mean, I know I didn't take anything, even for my best friend. I'm so blessed to still have best friends that didn't give up on me because I told them to screw off when they said, Ryan, you have a problem. And I'm like, all right, don't talk to me ever again. Cause you're, you might get that if you're worried about somebody, they but I promise you, if they're in addiction, they don't mean it because I've broken so many family members and friends' hearts. And but I thank them now. I thank them every day. And it's a lot. But what I would suggest you doing is reach out to some of their family members, maybe let them know, make sure they know that, listen, so and so struggling and it's getting a little bad. And I've tried talking to them and they told me to screw off. So I just want to let you know, but don't hold it on your shoulders. I mean, if they're going to continue to drink, they're going to continue or they're going to continue to use or drink. They're going to continue to do it just like I was. It honestly, sobriety is a miracle, but everybody can have that miracle. And how do your friends help you stay sober? What kinds of things do your friends do now to help you remain sober? So they just, I mean, they just support me. They're, they, um, they support what I do. They, they know I love making videos to help others. So they support that. Like, like some of them, like some of them are like calling me, like one of my buddies, Ricky, he's calling me and he's like, dude, you're getting, <laughs> you're getting views as if you have 250,000 followers. I'm like, I know, man, it's crazy. <laughs> so they, they support me with that, but they also support me. If, if I don't want to be like me personally, I don't mind being around alcohol now. I mean, you can have a drink in front of me. I don't care, but they're not going to go and invite me to a huge party rager. If, if that, if that's what they want to do that night, they're not going to invite me in it. And I take that as a thank you. Like, I appreciate it because I wouldn't have went. <laughs> right. And so, you know, your, your friends, because they care about you, they make some, some trade-offs in their own life 
in, in terms of, of making a sacrifice, right? But they, they're doing it for the sake of you doing well and you thriving and, and you, and you surviving. I think, I think, you know, that's what, oh my gosh, I say that's what friends are for. Um, but then the song came into my, in my head and I was like, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want that image. I want that song playing in my head, but the cliche is true. I mean, that's what, you, that's what friends were for. You know, exactly. I mean, friend, friends are the people who are willing to do whatever it takes to see that the other person does well. And that is going to include sometimes saying hard things. Mm-hmm. So it's going to also include them making adjustments to make sure that, that you, that, that you do well in the plan ahead and, and to make sure that you all have a, have a great time connecting and, and being together. And so I think, I think having good friends, man, is, is like key. I think, I don't, I, I just don't think you can persist being sober by yourself. I think you need to have good people around you to, to, to support you. Do you think, is that fair? Uh, very fair. And I've been very, I know some people, struggle with having that i'm very blessed to always have been able to have a good group of friends that's uh will support whatever decision i make um but yes i totally agree like you need to surround yourself with the right people um and even the right family members i mean you might have to cut off your dad or your mom if they and that ain't easy i mean i didn't have to do that but i if they're interfering with your sobriety and your and uh, like your will to live, like you need to pick your life over being with your mom. I mean, I mean that's I mean that sounds harsh, but it, if I hopefully you understand what I'm saying, you know. No, that makes complete sense. If 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 sobriety is is a goal, you need to cut out everything in your life that's going to undermine or sabotage your sobriety. It doesn't mean it's permanent. No. Yeah. Like just the bad negativity, like you need to cut that out and whether it's a person or whether it's a place or, you know, exactly. That's what I meant. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. There, there was a, a famous study of Vietnam veterans when they came back. A lot of them were completely addicted to heroin and opioids when they were in theater in Vietnam. And when they came back to the States, they were able to get sober really quickly and what the data showed is that them being in a different environment, this is a completely different environment, allowed them to cold turkey, get off of, of, of opioids and heroin. For some of them that did a second tour, when they went back, they immediately mm-hmm. got addicted again. Because wow. as soon as they were back in that same context, all the same triggers and associations came back and they immediately relapsed. Yeah, that atmosphere just got right back into it. And then when they got back, they were okay. So it's really interesting, I think, the, just, just the importance of having the right supportive environment in terms of uh, allowing people to persist in their, in their sobriety. Ryan Primer, I just want to say from the bottom of, of my heart that I am incredibly proud of you. I think you are one of the most courageous men I've ever seen in my life because you are someone who is putting your story out there. You're being very transparent, but you're also doing it for the, for the sake of helping people. I have a phrase, I have a, a book I'm working on 
and I have this phrase that's not new to me, but it's called heroic masculinity. And, and that by that, I mean people who use their, their power and their presence and their strength and their, and their creativity for the benefit of other people. And Ryan, that's what I see you're doing. You are using your power and your presence and your strength and your creativity for the purpose of helping other people, for the benefit of other people. And this makes you one of my heroes because you are doing something that most men do not have the courage to do. They're too narcissistic and they're too selfish. But you are so giving and so other-centered that you're willing to put yourself out there so other people can, can get some help. And that's why I believe your account is exploding because, because people are actually being helped. They're relating, they're connecting, and who knows? I mean, my expectation, just based on what I've seen so far, is that years later from now, you're going to get a message from someone and they're going to say something like, hey, you saved my life. That one little 30-second video that you made was the trigger that got me to get some help. And I just, I just want to thank you. Like Those are the kind of stories that are going to keep coming in because of, of the kind of person, person that you are. So I, I just, I'm, I'm really proud of you. I hope your mother and your stepfather are incredibly proud of you because I, I think you're just doing extraordinary work. I appreciate it. And with you saying that, let me read you this real quick. I mean, like I said, I get messages all the time, but this one really struck my heart the other, uh, it was yesterday. It said, Hey man, I don't know how to put this, but thank you for not making me feel alone. I first drank and smoked at 15. Now, six years later, five toxic relationships later, I'm 21, lost, dependent on alcohol, just to feel normal, just to be able to watch something without overthinking. I never thought of being sober because I felt like maybe I should just be let myself go. After seeing your story, I thought about giving recovery a shot for the first time ever. As I'm texting this, I have that little demon telling me to go do it anyways, but I lost myself in your post and it really cemented me. Thank you. And that, that really hit my heart. Like, like if that made my week, if I could do that to a hundred people to a hundred thousand people, that's my goal. Well, Ryan, give give it a try. Well, Ron, I hope, I hope your Instagram account explodes. I mean, I hope it goes, it goes ridiculously viral, even more so than it is. I hope you get up to Justin Bieber kind of numbers, like 250 million. I, I just, I just want, to, I just want it to explode. And I'm telling you right now, I'm going to do whatever I can uh, to help you get as much exposure as possible. As I told you the other day when we talked to the phone, I am officially now on Team Ryan. I want all of my listeners. I appreciate it, Anthony. I want all of my fish. I want all of my listeners to know I am now on Team Ryan Primer, and I'm going to get these shirts. You're going to see me wearing that stuff. I'm going to take pictures of myself in this wearing this shirt, and I'm going to I'm going to be telling this story because I think it's really really incredible. How can people get access to the merchandise that you have? It's up at, in the link of my Instagram. It's in the bio. Just cl- I only have one shirt up on there, and it's the, your anxiety is lying to you. And I'm I think I'm going to keep it that way for a while. Great, well, awesome, Ryan. Thanks again for joining me on the Anthony Bradley Show, and bless blessings to you. And I hope, I hope, I hope, like I said, uh, that we'll be hearing more about your story uh, very, very soon. Thanks, th- thanks again for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Anthony. I truly appreciate it.
I would also like to thank my Patreon supporters for their generous support of this project. If it were not for your generosity and support, this project would not be possible. You all are the most important part of this experience. Thanks to you all for joining us today on this episode of The Anthony Bradley Show. If you enjoyed it, please like, subscribe, and leave a comment on the various platforms where the podcast is heard. And I look forward to engaging you again here at the King's College in New York City on The Anthony Bradley Show.